Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about a bloke named Afonso, who became the very first king of Portugal when he established it as an independent kingdom in 1139, all the way back in the 12th century. Prior to this, Portugal was actually a vassal state. It wasn't independent like it is today. It was a, it was a county. Uh, and if you think about the huge influence that Portugal uh, has had on world history, you know, in the last few centuries, its origin story is is pretty bloody important, really. These days, Portugal is one of three countries in Iberia, which is the, the Iberian Peninsula, the western end of Europe. There's obviously Spain, there's tiny little Andorra, uh, and of course, Portugal is also a little bit of France in, um, in, on Iberia as well. But back in the 12th century, in Afonso's time, things were very different indeed. Let me tell you, if you don't know much about Iberian politics of the high Middle Ages, and I can't imagine why you wouldn't know a lot about that, I tell you what, you're in for a real, tr- you're in for a real treat here because it was uh, complicated. But we'll get across all this uh, in due course. We talk about Afonso and his exploits, as well as the exploits of his mum, uh, a woman named Countess Teresa, who had a very important role in setting the scene for young Afonso uh, to seize power and to fight for independence. As ever, of course, say it every week. There's a lot to get across today, but before we start, uh, I want to thank Bruno da Silva Nunes, who wrote in to suggest uh, Afonso's story as a topic for the podcast. So cheers very much, Bruno, old mate. Very, very illuminating to read about Portugal and, uh, you know, get a bit of background on this nation that would go on in time to uh, to dominate uh, world history in the following centuries. Anyway, here we go. Let's get to it. Off we go down the track with the story of Afonso the first, and of course, the origin story of Portugal itself. We're going all the way back here, going all the way back to, well, 1106 or maybe 1109 or maybe even 1111. We're not actually 100% sure. In one of those years, Afonso was born. There's no consensus as to exactly which one. There's a bit of argument. A lot of people seem to land on 1109, so I'll kind of use that, but, you know, almost as a midpoint, really, between the other ones. But it could could have been 06, could have been 11, could have been 09, not sure. But before we begin the story of Afonso, I actually want to zoom out a bit and set the scene on the Iberian Peninsula because I mentioned how complicated it was. Um, Iberia, as I say, the, the part of the world we today basically call Spain and Portugal, it was an absolute mess of various kingdoms, principalities, duchies, counties, and, and, and all sorts of other stuff back then. And to make it even more confusing, they didn't follow a simple or straightforward ranking system. It didn't just go, you know, king, duke, count, whatever. Like, it wasn't nice and neat like that. It was all over the place. Some kingdoms were vassals to other kingdoms. Some duchies were more pow- had more political power than other kingdoms. You know, the, the king- these kingdoms that, you know, should have or might have seemed to outrank them, right? All sorts of stuff going on here that was just it make- makes it so hard to follow. And then on top of all of that, I mean, forget the ranking things, right? All of these noble ruling families, they're all impossibly interrelated. So it's not a, you know, it's not so much a, a family tree as you look at all the Iberian noble families here as so much as it is a family bowl of spaghetti and there are constant wars within all the various kingdoms all the various you know dynasties and families and whatever else right across the Iberian Peninsula as they all jostled for position there's infighting between Leon, Castile, Aragon, Navarra, Galicia, the Catalan counties later on Portugal of course and it all makes it I mean, that makes the whole period very confusing to pick apart properly but look you know I'll I'll, I'll do me best these days, 
relatively straightforward, of course, in the modern era, on a map at least. There's Spain, big, and then Portugal, a bit smaller. And then there's Andorra, very tiny indeed. And then there's, uh, you know, a, a little bit of France, as I said. And, of course, there are those campaigning for Catalonian independence and, uh, and, and you know, people around the world still getting Portugal confused with Spain. So maybe it's actually not that simple these days. But I tell you this, it's a lot more simple. It's a lot simpler these days than it was back then. But the other major difference we need to cover here before we begin the story proper, right? The other, the ma- other major bit of sa- uh, scene setting we need to do here is to point out, of course, that back then, half of the peninsula was ruled by Muslims. Al-Andalus, as historical Muslim Iberia is often referred to as, uh, Al-Andalus involved a ton of different Islamic, Islamic states over the centuries, all of which ruled different amounts of territories on the peninsula in various capacities. There were empires, there were dynasties, there were petty kingdoms, all sorts of things. It's very difficult to present a sort of simple and unified history of Al-Andalus, but suffice to say that roughly, I mean, at the point of this story anyway, roughly half of the Iberian Peninsula is uh, is under Islamic rule, right? But uh, in the 8th century, if we go back a little bit further, almost all of modern-day Spain and Portugal was ruled by Muslims. But again, by the time of our uh, mate Alfonso, the Alm- the, it's, uh, it's the Almoravid Empire at this point, and that, uh, they rule roughly ha- roughly the southern half of the peninsula. And of course, there's constant conflict between the Christians to the north and the Muslims to the south. The, uh, the most recent important development in the time of Alfonso, uh, before our story starts here, was in 1085, when uh, Alfonso the Sixth. by the way, there are there is there are there is Alfonso our hero and then there is also Alfonso and then there'll be another Alfonso later you'll meet him so it's all getting very confusing anyway Alfonso the sixth who was Alfonso's grandpa he captured Toledo now the capture of Toledo in 1085 led to a slow but steady decline of his Islamic rule in Iberia there's a bit of back and forth but broadly speaking slow and steady decline all the way through to 1492 when the last Islamic states finally surrendered to the to, to Christian rule in in a period that was known of course as the Reconquista that was the end of the Reconquista anyway we'll get to the role that Al Andalus played in Alfonso's life a little bit later however because the first for the first party the first part of the story he's too busy fighting other Christians to worry about fighting Muslims. And why, you might ask, is he fighting other Christians? Well, because at his birth, he is the latest addition to this big bowl of spaghetti that I was talking about, making things very, very complex with dynastic and familial lines and and all sorts of things like that. He's the son of the Countess of Portugal, who is a woman named Teresa. I mentioned it before. Teresa was the illegitimate daughter of Alfonso VI, who is the king of Leon and Castile, the bloke I mentioned who captured Toledo. So you've got Alfonso VI, illegitimate daughter uh, named Teresa. She's the Countess of Portugal, and she's got a son whose name, as I say, is Afonso. He's he's the the main bloke in our story today. Now, as a countess, right, she is a vassal of the king. Portugal is at this point in in its history a vassal state. It's a county rather than independent realm. So she's a vassal of her dad, uh, and it's part of the kingdom, of his kingdom, which is, of course, the kingdom of Leon and Castile. And she's married, to, Teresa, she's married to a French fella whose name is Henry of Burgundy. Now, her dad, uh, the king, right, he organised the marriage when she was 13 years old. So Henry of Burgundy, his army, could come over and help him fight against the Muslims who were pushing back after the capture of Toledo. Around the time Afonso was born, however, his grandpa Alfonso VI, he dies, right? He dies in 1109. So it could have been exactly very much the same year or a couple of years either side, whatever. Um, And with the death of Alfonso VI, the monarchy passed to his daughter, who is, of course, Teresa's half-sister, his legitimate daughter, a woman named Uraka. However, Alfonso's dad, Henry, decides he's not going to... He seizes the moment, right? He he senses this is a good time to strike. He decides to invade Leon and fight his 
half-sister-in-law, right? I told you it was complicated. Man, I mean, I told you it was complicated. Uh, he wanted to fight this the new queen, Uraka, after, uh, after she'd taken the throne in order to expand the inheritance of his wife, Teresa, right? Because obviously she would have, she was, you know, a, a daughter of the, of, of, the, uh, of the newly dead king. Um, this didn't work. He didn't succeed. He ended up dying in 1112, not too long after this whole thing. And this left Teresa, the countess, to deal with the fallout from, you know, not only her husband's failed invasion, but also the wrath of her half-sister, who was pretty bloody pissed off about, you know, her half-sister's husband invading after the death of their father. Holy moly. Anyway. It only gets worse for Teresa as well here because on top of the beef that she's now having with her half-sister, she's also got forces from the Islamic Almoravid Empire at her southern border looking to reclaim lands that had been recently conquered by the Christians. You'll remember that this campaigning is sort of ongoing throughout this entire period. The reconquista took a very, very long time. But Teresa, she rose to the occasion. As Countess of Portugal, she's not taking any nonsense. And while uh, um, Afonso, her son, was still a young boy... His mum, Teresa, successfully defended her southern lands from Muslim incursions. She sent down her forces and she's actually managed to, she managed to hold them off and defend the land that had been recaptured by these Christians. She then, after having done this successfully, declared herself to be the Queen of Portugal. Rather than just a countess, right, she's not taking any more guff from her sister. She wanted to turn Portugal into its own independent realm and so she actually declares herself to be an independent queen. Now, this declaration is not broadly speaking, acknowledged by many people, right? And what it actually does is, again, incur the wrath of her, of her half-sister, who, again, is the queen here. But she turns her attention back to Uraka and decides ultimately to follow in her dead husband's footsteps, after all, in taking the fight to the queen, to Uraka, in order to expand the power and the influence of the county, or now the queendom, if you'll listen to her, uh, the, this realm, Portugal, right, which was attempting to seize its independence. Throughout the late 1110s, Teresa sought to expand the lands that she'd inherited from her dad at the expense of her half-sister. And in 1120, she went even further by allying herself with another rebellious um, uh, vassal of, uh, of Uraka, a Galician nobleman whose name was Fernando Perez. Now, they ended up being a lot more than political allies as well. Let me tell you this. They ended up shagging. They jumped into bed with each other, had a couple of kids. Fernando had a lot of power throughout Galicia. Galicia is the area, the, the, the land directly north of Portugal. Um, and their union was a very, very powerful one indeed, quite a threat to the stability of, uh, you know, the political stability of, of, of this part of the world. And uh, so powerful was this alliance, you know, forged in, uh, forged in the bedroom as it was, uh, so powerful it was that, that many Portuguese noblemen didn't like it, right? Even though their countess, their queen, if you listen to her, has, has gone off and secured herself an alliance with, with powerful Galicia to the north, they're going, no, 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 this is no good, not a fan of this. And the reason for that is they worried that entering into an alliance with Galicia, as, with Galicia being as powerful as it was, would result in the erosion of Portuguese power, that Galicia would subsume Portugal and kind of dominate, take over it, right? And so instead, all of these Portuguese nobles, they're looking for an alternative leader. They're looking for someone who will bring them away from the Galicians, stand up to Countess Teresa, and you'll never guess who they found. It was, of course, her young son, Afonso. Now, Afonso is just a kid. He's between 10 and 14. But nonetheless... When his mum realises all of these Portuguese nobles are kind of rallying around, he's, he's being used as a rally point uh, to, for the nobles that are seeking to oust her as, uh, as, their, as their leader. 
just a response. She goes, well, this son, you know, this this kid of mine, he's up to no good. Well, he, he's not really up to no good. It's not really his fault, but he's he's turning into this rallying point, this symbol. These people are getting around him, so I've got to get rid of him. So what she does, if you'll believe this, she exiles her own son. She exiles her own son, sends him into exile. Get out of here, kiddo, she says, right? Can't have him hanging about, you know, threatening her reign, can she? Can't. I mean, they say keep your enemies close, but maybe not that close. So she exiles him. And I'll tell you this, you won't be surprised to learn, this proves to be a bad move. Because in the coming years, right, Afonso, he's got the, the broad support of many of the Portuguese nobility, uh, you know, despite the fact that the official leader of Portugal is off, you know, quite, well, both literally and figuratively in bed with Galicia. Um, Afonso has a lot of support from a lot of very powerful people in Portugal. And when he comes of age, he knights himself and begins to campaign against his mum. Things went from bad to worse from Teresa at this point. In 1121, while fighting her half-sister, uh, Teresa was taken prisoner and she was actually forced to accept a peace treaty that saw her remain a vassal. She had to reaffirm her, uh, her, her vassalage to, uh, to Uraca as the queen of Leon and Castile. Now, this didn't stop the fighting, of course. These intra-kingdom disputes c- continued throughout the 1120s, but it was a big blow against Teresa uh, and, and her ambitions to, be, to become the independent queen of Portugal. I mean, she was a very ambitious woman, very, very ambitious woman. She, she remained allied with, the, with this uh, Galician bloke, Fernando, in attempting to expand her power and influence and, and secure independent rule. But by 1128, she's made too many enemies. She's put too many noses out of joint, and she is now in very big trouble. She's still calling herself queen, although her claim to independence, you know, and an and independent queenship is, it's a, it's a little tenuous, really. I mean, you could, I guess you could make the argument that she had a level of de facto independence in the same way that, you know, a lot of these discontent vassals throughout the entire Iberian Peninsula, regardless of which kingdom they're supposed to be a part of, all did have a level of autonomy just because there wasn't a huge amount of political stability. But I think ultimately it is a little a little bit of an overstatement to say that uh, that Teresa was a queen in her own right, was actually an independent ruler. Anyway, the, the, the point here is this, right? She's made too many enemies. As I say, she's, she's pissed off a lot of people. And now... In 1128, there's a new ruler on the on the throne of Leon Castile, a bloke whose name was Alfonso VII, her half nephew, the son of Araco, uh, Araca, and the, and a cousin to her son Alfonso. Of course, he took the throne when his mum Araca died in 1126, two years previous, uh, and he took the fight to Galicia and the rebels there and Portugal, of course, to enforce his rule, as well as many other places. Iberia, just of course, a hotbed of rebellion in fighting in these times. Anyway. Alfonso VII, he's fighting her and, and Fernando in Galicia. And it's at this point in 1128 that our mate Alfonso, he also kicked off against Teresa. He's kicked off against his mum and 1128 overthrew her altogether from within Portugal with a, a level of legitimacy too because, of course, he was her, he was her child. He was her heir and she's rebelling against, uh, against the monarch there. So a very good result for him, especially considering that he had the broad support of the Portuguese nobility, unlike his mum. And once he had withdrawn Portugal from the long-standing entanglement with Galicia, you know, he, he, gained, he gained raucous approval from all the Portuguese noblemen. But also, right, he gained the approval of his cousin Alfonso VII. Very happy with this. He was proclaimed Count of Portugal, and he further turned the tables on Teresa after this by, once he'd secured his title, exiling her this time around. So a bit of a taste of her own medicine there for mum. She wasn't too happy with that. Oh, she, she was actually fine. She went to live with uh, with, with Fernando in Galicia. So I, I, think she, she, I think she'd done all right. Anyway, as I say, Alfonso VII, right, the king, 
Very happy indeed. Very, very happy indeed. His cousin Afonso's victory helped him secure his rule over the entire kingdom by removing, you know, one discontented faction. Now he could go off and fight with the Castilians who were also rebelling. And he was, in fact, he was so pleased with his cousin's efforts in, uh, in, in you know, removing his mum as a rebellious element that he actually allowed Afonso to refer to himself as the Prince of Portugal rather than just the Count. Now, you'll remember, they're both grandsons of the old king, Alfonso VI, Alfonso this, uh, Alfonso VII's grandpa, um, is also the, the grandpa of Afonso. So it seems reasonable enough. You know, he's got the royal bloodline. He's got he's part of the royal bloodline. He calls himself the Prince of Portugal. Nice little boost to his prestige and his ego there like that. And everyone's happy. Well, for now. Afonso, he secured his county. And while, of course, he is still a vassal of his cousin, he gets to be called a prince. While King Alfonso VII now no longer has to deal with Teresa's rebellious faction. He can instead focus on the, you know, thousands of other discontented nobles that he's having to deal with across his entire realm. So for the moment, everyone's happy. And as we move into the 1130s, Afonso, he takes a bit of a break from fighting his family to instead take the fight to the Almoravid Empire to the south. Now, as I've mentioned, the fight between uh, Christians and Muslims on the Iberian Peninsula, a very, very long one indeed, stretching back hundreds of years already, all the way back to the 8th century here. Um, and this long, drawn-out conflict involved uh, forces across the entire peninsula struggling for dominion over various lands at different points. Afonso, however, he proved equal to the task. And I mentioned that the tide was turning against the Islamic rule in Iberia. And Afonso was a very big part of that now and in the future here. He repelled Almoravid incursions to the south of Portugal, defending these lands, defending the lands the Christians had conquered off the, uh, off the Muslims previously here. And did a very good job of shoring up the presence of, that uh, the, the you know Christians had in this uh, in this area as slowly but surely the as I say the the, the Islamic states were beaten back. In 1139, his campaigns campaigns against the Almoravid Empire culminated in the Battle of Uruk, right? And at this battle, enormously important battle as we'll come to, it secured Portugal's southern border. This is the short-term impact. It secured the southern border against the Almoravids. It brought enormous prestige and acclaim to Afonso and would go, would go on to be not just a turning point in his career, but in the, in the history of the region and, more broadly speaking, the world. Because a direct consequence of the Battle of Arik, the most important consequence of the Battle of Arik, was that with the support of the army that had just won him this battle, Afonso started calling himself the King of Portugal, just as his mum had called herself Queen. However, this time it stuck. And this moment is largely considered by historians to be the point at which an independent Portugal was established, the Battle of Arik in 1139. However, there's still a lot of work to go. And in the beginning, just as his mum had had, Afonso had difficulties getting anyone to, to recognise this self-proclaimed title. He bloody pissed off his cousin, let me tell you that. Ten years ago, Afonso was a new vassal, happy enough in his new role, ready to go and bloody fight the Almoravids to the south. But now he's all grown up. Big army, bigger ambitions, and he's calling himself a king, seeking independence and equality with the other, with the other you know, ruling families, other monarchs across Iberia. So, to that end, right... Afonso started to run his land like an independent kingdom. He started, I mean, you know, at least internally, he, he ran it as though he was independent. And in a much realer sense than, you know, his mum had ever managed to be, he was a de facto independent leader here. 
and he did it quite clever, cleverly too here, seeking seeking legitimacy as a as a as a sovereign leader. He did he did it very cleverly. Rather than fight a long series of pitched battles with his cousin King Alfonso the Seventh, who was also busy fighting the Almoravids as well, not a good look to you know attack a Christian leader while they're busy fighting Muslims. Alfonso took a different tack. Now these two did fight. There were there were various battles that they had here, there, and everywhere. But there wasn't a long, drawn out, sustained campaign between the two uh, between the two realms here. And the reason for this is. Afonso recognised that when you get down to it, all real political legitimacy throughout Christendom at this point in history, it all came from one place, and one place only, and that was Rome and the Pope. And so to that end, Afonso cleverly decided that he didn't need to win over anyone else. He didn't need to win fights on the battlefield. He didn't need to uh, you know, assert his martial might over his neighbours. All he needed to do was get the Pope to recognise Portugal's independence, and that would be that. He'd be a king in his own right. If the, if the Pope says it's so, it's so. That's going to be that, right? And it was a smart play, I have to say. And in, old, you know, in the fullness of time, it paid off in spades. Uh, in, in the short term, Afonso married a woman named Mafalda of Savoy. Savoy over, you know, close to the Italian peninsula, gave him a, a political foothold uh, much closer to Rome than where he was over in Portugal. And then he worked very hard to accrue as much papal favour as possible. He built monasteries, he built convents, especially in the newly secured land to the south, he built these religious buildings. Uh, you know, these, these lands that have been captured from the Almoravid Empire, ruled over by uh, by these various Islamic uh, rulers for, for so long. He, he re-Christianised them, I guess you could say, by building these um, monasteries and, convent, and convents. He also lavished rich gifts on religious orders, both inside and outside of Portugal, and generally just made a great big fuss of, uh, of you know, being as as, pi- as pious as he could, so as to demonstrate to the uh, to the Pope that he was a good Christian leader. He did everything that he could to butter up the papacy before finally making his request for independence. And then, finally, in 1143, he sent this formal request for recognition all the way to the papacy in Rome. And he reckoned he had a good shot, not just thanks to his, you know, his earlier campaign against the Muslims, also all the new business with monasteries and whatnot. And the, the, the proposal he made to Rome was this. He proposed to become a direct vassal of the Pope himself, to, be, to, to become subordinate to the papacy rather than his cousin Alfonso VII. Now, a clever move, once again, you know, putting, presenting yourself as the liege man of the Pope is, uh, is really something that's going to sweeten the pot here. But as you can imagine, Alfonso VII, not a happy chappy with Afonso's political meddling here. His moving and shaking is not going over so well with the King of Leon. And so in that very same year, 1143, the conflict between the two cousins finally came to a head. The problem for Alfonso VII, though, is that he just didn't have the resources to fight his cousin. He had his hands full. He wasn't able to stretch, you know, the, the, the forces that he had any thinner. He couldn't stretch them far enough to contest his struggle, his, his cousin's struggle for independence. He's dealing with, of course, uh, you know, fighting uh, the Almoravid Empire to the, to the south. He's dealing with rebellions across the rest of his realm. To the point that in 1143, when this comes to a head with this papal, uh, you know, the emissary that was sent by uh, Afonso to the to the papacy, in 1143, Alfonso really has no other choice than to sign the Treaty of Zamora. This was a treaty that was signed by these two cousins, witnessed by a cardinal who represented the papacy, and with this treaty, Alfonso the Seventh recognised the sovereignty of Afonso 
who of course by this treaty was now made King Afonso I of the Kingdom of Portugal. Very, very difficult to dispute his claim now that his former suzerain has acknowledged it, right? Now, interestingly, while 1143 was the year of the Treaty of Zamora, Portugal is still considered to have become an independent realm in 1139 after Afonso won the Battle of Arique. And that's why I was saying before the Battle of Arique was so important, such a, such a monumentally important uh, date in Portuguese history, because it is then that we today consider Portugal to have been properly founded, properly established. And because of this, because of this, this uh, establishment in 1139, Portu- it makes Portugal one of the oldest nations on earth. This is often a highly subjective measure, of course. The creation of countries is complicated. It's messy, often disagreed upon. But it is safe to say that Portugal is old. It is pushing a thousand years old, in fact. And in the coming centuries, Portugal would grow, of course, to become one of, if not the most powerful nation on earth as the Age of Sail began and Portugal spread its colonial influence across the world, for better or for worse. It grew into a global empire, largely uncontested in power for a very long time. And it all began here with a couple of cousins scrapping over a little corner of Iberia in the 12th century. But let me tell you this, back in the 12th century, the scrapping didn't stop. Even after the Treaty of Zamora, which was you know, supposed to secure lasting peace between these two kings in their respective realms, they're still going at each other. Afonso, perhaps quite wisely, decided that he needed to take further steps to secure his independence once and for all. He, he was potentially worried that his cousin would turn around after a couple of years, maybe after his fortune sort of was a little bit more favourable, maybe, you know, he managed to put down a couple of other rebellions or, or secure his kingdom a little bit better. He would be able to then turn around and go, well, you know, tear the Treaty of Zamora back to bits. I'm, I'm bringing Portugal back into the fold. He might have, might have been worried about this sort of stuff. And so what he did was allied himself with the Aragonese enemies of his cousin Alfonso VII. Afonso went into an alliance with Aragon, which was on the other side of of uh, of Leon, kind of hemming it in, hemming he- hemming Leon in on on either side. He also continued to ingratiate himself with the Pope. Of course, still the Pope hasn't officially acknowledged Portugal's independence or accepted the kingdom as a papal vassal. So that makes the situation for Afonso a little more tenuous because if the Pope doesn't sign off on this independence arrangement, it isn't as uh, you know, it- it's not as concrete as he might like it. Anyway. In the coming years, Afonso married his son and his eventual heir, Sancho, to Dolce of Aragon, from you know, obviously from one of the noble Aragonese families, firming up an alliance that, as I say, hemmed in Afonso VII on either side of Leon and, and Castile. And he aided uh, his new Aragonese allies in their fight against his cousin, all the while continuing to do whatever he could to gain more papal favour, principally, of course, by fighting the Al- uh, Almoravid Empire at the south. Afonso captured more and more land off the Almoravids as the uh, as the years went on. He settled the captured land with Christians to cement his hold over it and uh, moved in on and captured cities like Santarum and, and Lisbon. Lisbon, of course, today the capital of Portugal. And it was, it was, uh, it was taken by Afonso all those years ago. Uh, as he pushed further and further south, he made more and more gains like this. And, and a great deal of this captured land was given over to monasteries, given over to religious military orders like the Knights Templar. And on top of that, he invited new settlers from other parts of Christendom to come and live in the newly captured land, again, strengthening his hold over it. You'll remember that I said that the fall of Toledo in 1085 was a watershed moment in the wars between you know, Christians and Muslims in Iberia, and how after 1085, Christians slowly but surely began to wrest control of the peninsula uh, from the Islamic states that, that had ruled there. 
And this is what I'm talking about when I when when I talk about this tide, right? Kings like Afonso putting in a huge effort to capture land from the southern Islamic states in order to impress the Pope, essentially for their own political reasons. Campaigns like Afonso's led ultimately to the situation in 1492, where the last Islamic states surrendered to Christian leaders, completing what's known as, of course, the Reconquista. Now, the Reconquista wasn't over quickly. It took centuries, hundreds of years. But it was rulers like Afonso I who hurried, hurried along towards its eventual end in the, at the end of the 15th century. And I'll tell you this, these campaigns... They worked out just fine for Afonso for more reasons than one. Not only did he secure papal approval, he also grew and strengthened his newly created kingdom and made it more likely that it was going to survive and, and, and prosper as it grew larger and more populous. He took advantage of the prevailing political winds very cleverly indeed, Afonso. He made the most of the weaknesses of his cousin in order to carve out this independent realm and then grew its power and influence through a con, uh, through this this confluence of of uh, of papal approval and military conquest. Now, when his cousin died, Alfonso the Seventh died in 1157. Uh, he's still remembered today as the as the the king who whose reign saw the loss of Portugal from the Leonese crown. But his successor was his son, Ferdinand the Second. And if you'll believe it, Ferdinand the Second also came into conflict with Afonso I, even though Afonso I was his father-in-law. Are you hungry for some more family spaghetti? Because here's a great big bloody bowl of it. Get, uh, get yourself ready. Tuck your, tuck your napkin in because it's, it's getting complicated once again here, right? Ferdinand II, the son of Afonso's cousin, Alfonso VII, married Afonso's daughter, who, even more confusingly, also shared a name with Afonso's mother's half-sister, Uraka. This means that Afonso and Ferdinand were first cousins once removed, and that by marrying Uraka, Ferdinand married someone with whom he shared great-grandparents. So talk about, buddy, keeping the bloodline pure. That is a very, very tangled web to, uh, to try to unpick here. But despite this marriage, right, despite the fact that, again, Ferdinand was now the son-in-law of Afonso, they still fought. They still fought over all sorts of stuff, uh, mo- uh, uh, most notably in the north, in Galicia. Afonso, ever the opportunist, he'd been harrying uh, F- Ferdinand at, at Portugal's northern border for quite some time, capturing bits of land here and there from Galicia wherever he could. But ultimately... This backfired quite badly in 1169 when Afonso, who again is around 60 by now, is, is turning, is becoming quite an old man. He was fighting in Badajoz, which is uh, near the modern-day Spanish-Portuguese border. And while fighting, Afonso came off his horse. He was badly injured, and he was taken prisoner by Ferdinand. I mean, familial relations be damned. This bloke is, uh, you know, they're essentially at war, so he takes him as a prisoner. And this gave Ferdinand the opportunity to ransom Afonso in exchange for all of the conquests Afonso had made into Galicia, essentially everything north of the Minu River, which today still serves as part of the northern border of Spain and Portugal. So you can see the legacy of that conflict uh, is, you know, it's still visible to this very day. 
The story goes, I'm not sure if this is 100% true, but the story goes that after after his capture, Alfonso was made by Ferdinand to swear to never ride a horse again. Now, again, this might not be true, but whatever the reason, it's thought that Alfonso did indeed never ride again. He may have just been simply unable to after the, the you know, the, the bad injuries he received after coming off his horse at the age of 60. That's not unreasonable. But whatever the reason, he did never ride again. But even in his old age, Alfonso remained a, a strong and seemingly very popular king. And in 1179, his final lasting legacy was, was ultimately secured when the Pope, at long, long last, finally got back to him about that proposal from almost 40 years ago. It took a bloody long time. But in 1179, the Catholic Church accepted Portugal as a vassal kingdom, not only definitively securing its political legitimacy as an independent nation, of course, I mean, no one was going to argue with the Pope, but also making it essentially untouchable. No other nation was going to go after a vassal of the papacy. And so Portugal's independence was assured. And it is, it's, largely speaking, remained independent ever since, except, I suppose, for that bit between 1581 and 1640 when the Habsburgs ruled alongside Spain in the Iberian Union. But aside from that, Portugal has remained, for all intents and purposes, an independent nation. Afonso never stopped fighting, though, right through to his death, right through the 1180s. He was still pushing his forces further south, fighting with the Muslims. Uh, by now, the Almoravid Empire has given way to the Almohad Caliphate. But right up to his death in 1185, Afonso of, of, uh, I of Portugal, he did everything he could to fight for his young nation's future. And what a future he gave it. As I mentioned, Portugal would go on to become a global maritime superpower in the 15th and 16th centuries, exploring and charting oceans, seas and coastlines, establishing colonies all around the world. In particular, the colony of Brazil grew to become the world's sixth most popular nation today, with a population that is over 20 times the size of Portugal's in the modern era. Even after Portuguese dominance faded in the modern period and after a series of political upheavals throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, Portugal's influence on human civilization is very difficult to understate. 250 million people worldwide speak Portuguese. It is the sixth most spoken language on earth by native speakers. And Portuguese culture and architecture and history have all profoundly influenced people across the entire world, for better or for worse. And all of this from a relatively minor territorial dispute between two cousins in the 12th century. I mean, most of us, we fight with our cousins about whose turn it is on the Xbox. But Afonso's fight with his cousin would shape the course of human history for centuries to come. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Afonso I of Portugal. I want to thank Bruno once again for sending it in. Very interesting to learn about the origin story of this nation that, uh, you know, grew from such small beginnings to be so overwhelming, so monumentally powerful before settling into its uh, its position today as part of the European Union. Very, very, very fascinating. Quite a fascinating story to get across, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. Anyway. Normal boring housekeeping stuff, uh, halfhousehistory.net's the website. You can find a contact form there if you want to get in touch and send through an idea just as Bruno did. Uh, you can find the feed, direct feed, at anchor.fm slash halfhousehistory if you want to get across there. 
a fractional number of t-shirts still available, small and mediums only if you want to get uh, get your hands on one of them uh, at the merch shop. There will be plans for merch later on the year. Don't even worry about that. And finally, if you want to support the show on Patreon, you certainly can. Patreon.com slash half history. A huge thank you to all the exalted Patreons who uh, who support me week in and week out. If you want to join their ranks, you certainly can. Access to, you know, behind the scenes stuff, show notes, uh, uncut episodes, all sorts of things like that. So get across it if you're interested. But apart from that, thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing the word of half House History, and I'll see you next week for more hist- uh, more historical nonsense. Until then, a question coming your way from on uh, on Reddit from Jake the Snake, who asks, "Why doesn't Portugal have a more dominant naval presence when they still command countless man of wars around the world?" <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>